we'll talk about that. We are here to, uh, we've been talking about the miracles found in John. We've got two left uh, today, next Sunday. Uh, we covered some of them on two Wednesday nights. Uh, and just to recap on Wednesday, if you weren't here, uh, or we're doing something Wednesday, weren't here Wednesday, uh, we talked about Jesus walking on water. If you just missed church, because you know I'm uh, we talked about Jesus walking on water, the miracle of walking on water. And just, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but just the highlights uh, from that, the main points. Uh, the disciples were out in a storm. They had followed what Jesus said to do. They find themselves in a storm. Uh, if, you, if you investigate it, the storm probably had waves between 6 to 15 feet was the possibility. So these are pretty uh, large waves. We discovered that it was in the night, in fact, in the darkest hour, uh, from the, probably from 3 to 6 a.m. The, the disciples who there were seasoned sailors among them had pretty much given themselves up to the wind and the waves, which means they were probably off course. It says that they had rowed about, about three and a half miles, so they're possibly somewhere in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It's nighttime, there's a storm, they probably can't see shore very often because of the waves. And it tells us that Jesus came walking three and a half miles across the water and he walked right up to their boat. It doesn't tell us that Jesus was out doing a crisscross pattern, search and rescue, crossing the Sea of Galilee. But in the middle of all of that, Jesus walked right up to their boat when they were wondering where Jesus was. And the lesson for you and I is, is God doesn't just know who I am, he knows exactly where I am. And I may be in the boat wondering where Jesus is, but he's never lost me in the middle of the storm. It doesn't matter the hour. It doesn't matter what's taking place. He can walk right up when I need him to. And I know that there's people in here that have experienced that. You've experienced a word from the Lord or you've, uh, uh, you've read something or something happened and it just confirmed to you, you know what, God does know where I am. I needed that in this moment and God knows exactly where I am. And then we are challenged by that story because we have Jesus telling the disciples to not be afraid. And then we also look to the life of Jesus himself, including this very act of walking on water. And that Jesus, one of his uh, least counted uh, characteristics, if you would, is the fearlessness of Jesus. And how Jesus was not afraid. And we are challenged to not be afraid as well. To be willing to row out three and a half miles from the shore. To be willing to lose sight of the shore. To be willing to follow and step out when God tells us to go. And so we have the miracle of the water walker. And this week we're going to continue on John chapter 9. We're going to read those verses. John chapter 9 verses 1 through 11. Again another story that many people are probably familiar with because of the unusualness of what takes place. And it says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now we understand that he is no longer physically in this world, but we are in this world and we are the light of the world. When he hath thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. And he, that's a good word, spittle. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. 
He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. But he said, I am he. (laughs) I don't know why that strikes me as funny, but it does. Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes opened? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and I received sight. And this week we are looking at the mud maker. The mud maker. This story comes after Jesus uh, in chapter 8. has uh, In chapter 8 he's talking about uh, him being the light of the world that that he is the water that you need drink and, and you never thirst again. He's, he's been talking about this in the temple area. Uh, and, and he has reiterated for a second time that he is the light of the world in that passage that we read. He is reiterating that from uh, the previous conversation that he's had, which takes place in chapter 8. Now he's in the temple area at this time, where there were probably many who needed his touch. Uh, it, it was the Sabbath day. And so they were not allowed to beg, but there were a lot of people still gathered there. Yet he singles out the one guy who, amazingly enough, has no light in his life physically to demonstrate through this physical means what he is spiritually talking about, that he is the light of the world physically and spiritually. We understand, though, that there is more than just the physical uh, taking place going on here. We understand that while there is a physical healing that takes place, He's not just demonstrating that he can bring physical light to the eye, but he is demonstrating as well, it's a representation of what God will do in saving man from the blindness of sin, and it's also a representation of the light of the gospel shining into our lives that gives sight to us. And so there's a lot of things happening here. After this miracle, uh, there's confusion about who the man is as well because Jesus has touched him. He has brought light into his life. Now he can see. And again, the parallel comes to our lives that once we have experienced Jesus, once we have experienced the light of the gospel, the transformation should be enough in our life to confuse people who thought they knew who you were. I don't know. It's amazing that he sat there, we don't know how old this guy is, but he sat there all this time, and it says the neighbors, so these are people that, that probably should know him, and, and, and they, they're not sure if this is the guy or not. In fact, he says, no, it's me, it's really me. I, I wonder what would happen in our life if once the light of the gospel shines in our life, that we go to work or we go to wherever, and people say, I know they look the same, but man, their actions sure make me think it's a different person. Their attitudes sure are different. I'm not quite sure if this is really the same person. That's what Jesus can do when the light of the gospel shines in your life. And so we have from the outset, we have this, it's really a prophetic demonstration of the light of the gospel shining into the world. Uh, Just as Jeremiah and Ezekiel performed things that had meaning behind them, this is what Jesus really is doing. It's a prophecy acted out through a miracle of healing. That one, and so we have all this taking place. And we have the words, uh, a man which was blind from birth. This describes the man's condition. The physical eye and your mind's eye are linked. I'm going to say a word, and I'm going to see what what comes to your... Oh, I'm not going to see, but just as I say the word, think about what comes to your mind. The arch. What did you guys see? The golden arch? No, the arch. And, And when I said the arch, now you could have thought of a lot of arches, right? You could have thought of the foot, your arch, and your foot, right? 
You could have thought of the golden arches. You could have thought of a number of things. But probably most people thought of that big silver thing in St. Louis, right? Because I said the arch. Okay, so there, there, there's, there's, something comes to our mind's eye. How do you know, what, how did that image come to your mind? You've seen it before. Okay, so our physical sight and, if you would, our mind's eye are linked. So there's words which mean the same to everyone, really. If I say the White House, got an idea? Okay, now I could be talking about my house, which is white. But we kind of have that general idea. And how do I know what the White House looks like? Because I've seen an image of it. I've, I've seen it in person. Okay, so it, it, it's tied in there. Now, there's other things that conjure up something in our mind. So if I say the word pet, everyone thinking of a pet? But I would venture to say that we're not all thinking the same thing, right? Because that word has a different meaning. You're not thinking about the goldfish that I flushed down the toilet when I was a kid. <laughs> okay? If I say car, we're probably all going to get a different image. You may think of your current car, the car that you want. You may be thinking of your first car, but we get a different image. And it's tied to things that we've seen. I have a hard time conjuring up an image of something that I've never seen anything of. If you just, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing that still in our world today, uh, they are still discovering animals and, and plants. But as, as they dive deeper into the ocean, they're discovering uh, sea animals that they, they thought were extinct or didn't even know existed. It's very difficult if you just read the words describing that to get a mental image of what it actually looks like. How many ever listened to the radio before? Anyone? And I don't mean the TV. You've really listened to the radio. And, and you've, uh, you've, you've, you start to form a mental image, not, not because you've seen, but from what you've heard, you form a mental image of what you think that person looks like. Ever done that before? And then you've gone online or something, or, and you look at it, and you're like, wow, man, I didn't think they looked like that. It's kind of amazing. But when you haven't seen it, uh, it's, it's kind of hard to... So that's all tied together. So our mind's eye and, and, and our, our physical eye, those are tied. When you have trouble with physical vision, it begins to affect your mental vision of things. If, you have, if you've never seen an image, that, then you, you probably won't be able to capture what it, your, your imagination will kick in and try to conjure up something. And, and you may uh, base things on word association to try and conjure up an image, but you can't get a real image of it without seeing it first. Now think about that because it's tied to what you see. This man not only didn't have sight, but he had no brain images. That's kind of crazy to think about. So when you said White House to this guy, first of all, he's like, I'm in first century Palestine. I don't know what the White House is. It hasn't even been created. But if you would say, if you would say anything, this guy has no mental image. He has an image that is formed through touch, through sound, but it may be completely incorrect. And, and that, the, the way that happens is, is as, as infants, uh, synaptic connections are formed in our brain. They go between the optic nerve and the visual cortex. And since this man was born blind, those connections were never made in his mind. Babies are actually born legally blind. And they can't focus on anything farther than 12 inches away. That's why you get up in their face and make all kinds of silly noises. During the first 18 months, vision is kind of, it starts to be wired. And there's especially high activity during the first three months as images are formed. And that's why 
After a while, they start recognizing your face. They start smiling or crying when they see your face. It's because they're beginning to form those images. It's kind of interesting. This this is probably theoretical. Hopefully, no one's ever tried this and put this into practice. But theoretically, then, if you would put a patch over a baby's eyes and leave it there for the first few years of its life, that child would remain blind in one eye despite being theoretically able to use it. Because those connections are not formed. And they say that there's a window of sight that passes. There's a certain period of time when those connections are formed. And once that's done, uh, we all know that we're just losing all those connections now, don't we? Right? This is the scientific verbiage for a few screws loose. (laughs) But that window of sight passes. So understanding, again, we talked about the man who was paralyzed and what all that took. It wasn't just the man had to get up and walk. There was atrophy in his muscles. There was all kinds of things that had to happen. This wasn't just a man suddenly not seen and then seen. This guy uh, had his entire brain rewired when Jesus healed him. Think about that. All these things because the window of sight had passed. It wasn't just that there were no images there as well, but it was not possible at this man's age because we know he was a man and by the time you reach adulthood, these things are not very easily formed. Jesus fixed this guy's brain, not just his eyes. The magnitude of what Jesus did, despite the fact that the window of opportunity had passed. Now, because we only register what we see, While we think what we see is the world, that might not necessarily be true. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to start talking about 16 dimensions and all this kind of stuff. But we see the world as we are. We see the world through our experiences. We see the world through through the, the connections that have been formed in our brain. This is how when you can have five people that that are all eyewitnesses and they all have different variations of the story. Yours is true, of course. The other people are lying. They're the ones that are mistaken, right? But the way that we see, it depends on a lot of things. It depends on where you are. It depends on what you notice. And what you notice can lead into other paths about why did you notice certain things. And that can be based on what you've experienced before. Maybe you've been in a wreck before, and so when you witness uh, this wreck, that all came coming back, and you paralleled it to what you had seen and experienced before, and that's all you saw. In fact, I, I, was, <laughs> I just got done studying some of this, and uh, Cooper was looking for his iPad, and Cooper is a typical male. Uh, he gets up and says, he just said, I can't find my iPad. Like, that's it. He hasn't moved, he just can't find it, that's it. If it's not right there, he can't find it. So I was sitting on the couch. My wife said, have you seen his iPad? I said, no. I, and actually, what I did, I was sitting on the couch, and there's a little table over here, and I glanced over to the table because sometimes it's over there, like a little side table. I didn't see it, and I said, no, I don't know where it is. So I wasn't much better. <laughs> you know where the iPad was? Right there. It was right there on the floor. I looked over it. I looked over the iPad to see it. And so all, all that... It can be right there, but me, me not seeing the iPad doesn't mean it wasn't there. It was sitting right in front of me the whole time. So our vision sometimes isn't quite right, and all this plays into it. All of this happens. The question becomes, uh, who sees what and, and what's true and what's not? We just see through the lens of ourselves. We see through the lens of our experiences. We see through our own synaptic connections. 
Scripture has something to say about this. It's going somewhere. Maybe. Let me see. Yeah. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. You see, here's the deal with our synaptic connections, and they are taking place in our physical body, so this is only natural. But our synaptic connections, the way that we see things, the way that we view things, are based strictly on the temporal, strictly on the earthly. And that's why Paul says he's not speaking just of the temporal. He, we know he's speaking of something even greater. He says, while we can just uh, grasp the temporal while we're here on earth, we're not seeing the whole picture. We're not seeing entirely clear. We know that there's more that, that's taking place than what I can just see, just as in an eyewitness account. I may see it just one way and think that's the way it is, but there's so much more to see in that. Paul states that I have to remember that my judgment is clouded and it's, it's hampered by this earthly body. I know that I was born in sin. I was shapen in iniquity. And so my synaptic connections spiritually were made in a sinful environment were made in an environment of iniquity because that's how I was born. That's how I was shaped. And so this is how I view things. Because of that, I view things through the, the, the lens of death. I view things through the aspect of pain. I view things through hurt. I view things through anger. I view things through failure. Sometimes I would just cheat myself out of it and say, I view things as they really are. You see, because that's the lens that we must view through because we are temporal. But Paul wants to remind us that that is not the only way to see things. I know that that's how I was shaped. That's how I was born. That's the atmosphere and, and, and the, the uh, social environment, if you will, spiritually that I was created in. But that doesn't mean that that's all there is. Now think about this man. His window for sight was long gone. The opportunity was long past, but I want to remind somebody that God knows how to open windows of opportunity, even if nature itself says it's too long past. God knows how to open a window of opportunity in your life when it seems impossible, when nature itself says there's no way for this to happen. That's exactly what happened to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham said, don't you know the window of opportunity is past? Sarah laughed. Why did she laugh? Not because it was funny that she was having a kid. No, it was funny because the window of opportunity was passed. But God can decide to put a window of opportunity wherever he wants. And he can put it into your life. That's why it's never too late to be saved. Because God can open a window of opportunity on a deathbed and say, you know what? They've wasted their whole life, but I'm going to open a window of opportunity. That's why it's never too late to be healed. That's why provision can never be... No, God can open a window of opportunity wherever in my life. So I want you to remember that about how we see things in, in the physical, but there's also, that doesn't mean that we see it all completely. I want you to remember 1 Corinthians, what Paul says, because we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But we find that uh, immediately upon this man who was born blind, immediately we find the disciples asking Jesus a question. They said, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Sometimes things happen that are nobody's fault. That's tough to accept sometimes. Because we, uh, and, and I'm not sure that it's, it's a recent development. I think people have always been this way. Perhaps we just notice it more because we're, we're more heightened with media and things. But 
there's a lot of blame out there. As soon as something happens, what do we do? We want to, if there's a plane wreck, we want to find the pieces, put it together to find out why. Now, understand, that's good to find out why, so you can avoid some things. But that's the first thing we want to do. As soon as there's a scandal, as soon as something happens with government, as soon as a company, as soon as anything happens, what do we want to do? We want to, we want to make sure that we're, we're politically correct in our time before we start. But then as soon as it's all right to start, we start asking why. Why? Sometimes things happen that are nobody's fault. But sometimes that doesn't stop people from saying things. <laughs> this guy is blind. And as soon as they see the blind guy, his disciples want to know about the sin. Who sinned? Is that really appropriate at this moment? <laughs> it was the accepted assumption, though, that either this man or his parents had sinned. That is the reason this guy's blind. Everyone accepted that. The disciples themselves said, okay, we know it's one of these two reasons. We've got it narrowed down. It's either him or his parents that sinned. And just think about it. Uh, this man had to know that. This man probably wasn't ignorant to what people said. He, he's, he's a man. Again, we don't know how old he is. But I'm sure he's got, you know, because his eyes aren't working, he's got supersonic hearing. I'm sure he's heard people say things. I'm sure he's heard questions asked as people have come by. Why do you think that guy's blind? Oh, it's, oh you, know, you know his parents. <laughs> it's probably his parents. Or he probably did something. Yeah, I'm sure he's heard that. And he had to live with that, knowing in his life that, that it, uh, he may not have known all of his past, but his parents were, from what we can gather, it wasn't their, well, we know it wasn't their fault. He knows his own life, that he didn't commit some sin, and then God struck him down with blindness. But he had to deal with the blame. Perhaps he wondered at times, is it my parents' fault? Perhaps he had to struggle with those issues. Perhaps he had to fight his own feelings as, as to maybe it was my fault. Maybe it is my fault that I'm blind. These are real feelings that people have. And, and in fact, uh, he, as, he had to deal with bitterness as other people said things to him. And he knew they weren't true at all. He probably had to deal with bitterness. And you know what? Sometimes people have to struggle with these own internal things as other people question why they're in their situation. Sometimes it's nobody's fault. Now, I do agree that there's times that the reason you're in your situation, it's all your own dumb fault. <laughs> That's true sometimes. But this right here tells us, this story tells us that sometimes I end up in a situation and I can't put my finger on whose fault is it to blame that I'm in this circumstance. I, I was watching, I, don't, I mean, I, I hate to bring it up, but it's uh, very prevalent in our news right now, the investigations that are going on with Larry Nassar and all of the allegations, the doctor at Michigan State and the USA Gymnastics. And I watched a few of, they, they allowed the, the, uh, the, those who had been affected to come in and testify in court and speak to Larry Nassar. And, and I watched a few of those uh, uh, speeches as they gave them. And these are, and I was looking at this as well, and I was struck by how people deal with some things in their life. They can deal with, is it my fault? Is it my fault that I went through abuse? Is it my fault that I'm sick? Is it my fault that this has happened to me? And they have to listen to all these things as, as, as stories come out and people say, well, you're to blame and, and perhaps you caused this and all of these things happening. And they, they, they just begin to to churn in people's lives, the bitterness. You know what, people, in reality, because I believe that God is a healer, I believe that God is a miracle worker. But you know what, on, and, and I believe that, that faith is extremely important, but on the flip side of that, 
we can almost become overzealous. And I'm not saying, I'm not speaking to anyone specific. I'm just speaking in general here. But what about the person who comes forward for prayer many times and doesn't get healed? And then they hear the, the rumors or the whispers or they begin to question themselves. Is this my fault? Is it my faith? People have to struggle, we've already mentioned it, with abuse in their life. They have to struggle with all kinds of things as they question and thoughts begin to assail them. And the ultimate question, which is what the disciples ask, what it comes down to, is why? Why is this man blind? Why am I still sick? Why am I still in this position? Why did I have to go through this? Why did this happen to me? And the whys are always based on what we thought the script of our lives should be. They're based on what we think how life should have happened. We don't ask whys if we thought it was supposed to happen this way. If, if my plan is to go to school and then go to college and then get a good job and get a nice house and, and, and a wife and kids and have a good retirement, I don't ask why because that's how I planned it. But when it goes off script, when I get the phone call, when something bad happens, when this goes on, then I ask why. Why? Because it went off of what I thought it should be. It's disingenuous to ask God to open a door if you aren't willing to let him close one too. It's disingenuous to ask God for healing if I'm not willing to let him not heal me. Man, that's tough. You see, we get frustrated when the door closes, especially when we think it's the right door. I've been there. I thought this was the way. I prayed about it and still thought it was right. And then all of a sudden it slammed shut. Think about this though. Perhaps God leads us to doors sometimes. Perhaps God leads us to that door. Just so I can see it close and know for sure that it was him that did it. You see, we've got it so flipped though. If, 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 if it happened the opposite. If I came to that door and at the last minute it opened, I'd say it was God. But when I come to the door and at the last minute it closes, well, that can't be God. That's got to be the devil. That's got to be circumstances. That's got to be something. How is it miraculous when God does it at the last minute when we think that's what should happen, but when God does it at the last minute and it goes against our script, what we think, that's when we start saying why. I wonder if this guy had ever asked why. I'm sure he had. What if God is simply trying to show up close what's not right in my life? What if the doors remain closed? What if the why isn't answered? What if the script is flipped and it doesn't go my way? What if God is just trying to show me up close what isn't right? Jesus, he, he answered the question, who sinned? He said, nobody. We're going to look at why this man ended up in this position, why Jesus said in this position. But I, I, I would challenge you today. I would challenge you. Because these thoughts are things, that, th 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 these are things that we don't like to talk about. These are issues and situations we don't like to talk about. And I agree, I love to hear testimonies because they build my faith. I don't want to hear the second part of Hebrews 11. It's not testimony service. I don't want to hear about the people that God didn't heal. But you know what? That's life. That's reality. That's what happens. If God healed everybody, it wouldn't be supernatural. It would just be ordinary. Anyway. 
Jesus said, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. We see that Jesus tells his disciples in the gathered crowd that the ultimate reason for what is happening, the ultimate reason that this, the reason why this man is blind is so God can get the glory. The reason why this man has had to suffer for years of blindness, why he's had to hear what other people have said, why he's had to be led to the temple every day to beg, why he's had to beg just to survive, is so God could get the glory. So when I begin to think of my life, when I begin to look at situations I've been through, when you begin to look at situations that you're going through right now, how is it that what you've been through, how has it become a glory to God? You see, a lot of times I'm just glad to make it through. <laughs> I'm just glad to get out of it. And you know what I like to do? Brush the dust off my feet and say, wow, I made it through that valley. I'm just glad to get out of the valley. But where's the glory at? How has God received glory through what I've come through? It's the ultimate, if the ultimate goal is the glory of God, then let me tell you this as well. If that's the ultimate goal, then nothing can keep me from that goal. Cancer can't keep the glory from God because I can still glorify God through cancer. Chronic sickness can't keep me from glorifying God because I can still glorify God through that. You know what? Something unimaginable happens in my life. I can choose to still glorify God in those situations. A job loss with no prospects in sight can't keep me from glorifying God. Glorifying God can be separated from my circumstance. I can glorify God under any and through every circumstance. I already mentioned it. But the second half of Hebrews 11 is so profound because those are people who glorified God up until God did not deliver them. It's full of people who didn't receive their miracles, weren't delivered, weren't healed, died for what they believed, and yet they're in there because they kept glorifying God through everything. So I would challenge you in your situation right now. I'm not sure. I don't get to pick where the miracle happens. I don't get to decide who gets a miracle or who doesn't. But I'm going to challenge you to continue to glorify God in every situation, through every situation. If that's the goal, then my healing's not the goal. His glory is the goal. You see, and we come back to my eyesight. Paul says, we don't see it all clearly. The problem we have with glorifying God through every situation is because my eyesight is temporal. I do see my circumstance. I do feel the pain in my body. I do see what's happening in my family. I do see what's going on. I can't think of the will of God in time and it just be a temporal sense. You see, this is what we're challenged to do. This is part of seeing through a glass darkly. Is when I look at the situation, I see it in a temporal time frame. But I have to understand that to see it more clearly, I must add eternity to the equation. You see, I can't think that somebody wasn't healed. I can when I look at it in the temporal sense. I can when I put time on it. When I say, you know what, they weren't healed. And you know what, I can stand over their casket and say, nope, they weren't healed. God didn't come through. But when I add eternity to the situation, I understand that they are healed. I can look at them and say, well, they never made it through this. They didn't make it through that. No, when I add eternity through it, I understand that there's no more tears. There's no more dying. There's no more sorrow. When I see, when I see more clearly. But see, I have trouble with that because I can't see a world where there's no death. There's no crying. There's no tears. There's no sorrow. 
I can read about it, but I haven't seen that. That's why, that's why I think it's going to be 30 minutes of science. We're going to see things that our mind has conjured up, like seeing the radio host for the first time, and you're like, man, he's 400 pounds. I thought it was some skinny dude. No, we're going to get to heaven, and we, have, we all have, if I say heaven, everybody's got an image right now, and it may all be different, but it's not even going to be like that because you've never seen it before. But when you see it, oh, it's going to be so wonderful. It's going to be amazing. You won't even be able to speak is what Scripture says. These are not my words, but I think these are some of the most profound words I've ever read. Speaking of healing and wounds and things that happen in our life. And I believe that God can, can, can help you not be defined by what has happened to you that's negative. I believe that. I also believe that even though God heals, we still carry wounds with us sometimes. Scars. I do believe that. And I believe that's an entrance for the enemy. It doesn't, even though I may have a scar, the Lord can have healed me. But when I begin to refocus on that scar, when I begin to refocus on that, I believe the enemy can come in and remind me and I begin to open it all back up. Somebody said, time heals all wounds. (laughs) I looked and looked. I can't find out who said it. Nobody, nobody will own up to it. (laughs) But one person said, and I love this. Time doesn't heal all wounds, but eternity does. You see, all of our stuff is confined to time right now. And, and, and you know what? There's some things that happened in your life. There, there's, there's passing of loved ones. There's some things that, you know what? If you lived to a thousand years, you'd still feel it. You would still feel the, the, the pain that was in there. And even though you've come through it, and even though God's been, there's still something there. But when we can remove the bounds of time, that's when eternity does its work. You see, eternity isn't just about living forever. No, it does a whole lot more than that because time can't heal all wounds, but eternity can heal all wounds. You know what? I want to make it to heaven. I want to see Him face to face. I'm tired of seeing through the glass darkly. No, I want to see Him for what and who He really is. This is not about getting over something or getting through it. That guy could have uh, decided, you know what, I'm not going to let my blindness hinder me, but he was still blind. It's not just, well, get over it. But you can't allow the questions that you don't have answers to to keep you from trusting what you do know to be true about God. You see, that's very important because it's in those moments when we are asking why and, and we're not getting any response because that's, that's the deal with why is a lot of times I don't get a response from God about why it's happening. But when I begin to ask why and those questions begin to assail my mind, suddenly I begin to chip away at what I do know about God. That's why it's so important for me to solidify that I know who God is and that doesn't change in the good times or the bad times. In fact, one author said that he decided to to do this in his own life. It was a good time. And he decided, you know what? It was the author, Max Lucado. And he said, I'm going to write down right now what I know about God. And this is what he said. God is still sovereign no matter what. He still knows my name. 
angels respond to his call. And he wrote this down so that when a tough time came, he could pull this out and read it. When, when the call came and, and the doctor said, this is what's taking place, or a loved one passed or something happened, he was going to pull this out. And in the middle of that situation, God is still sovereign. He still knows my name. In the middle of this circumstance, angels still respond to his call. The heart of rulers still bend at his bidding. The death of Jesus still saves souls. The Spirit of God still indwells saints. Heaven is still only heartbeats away. The grave is still a temporary housing. God is still faithful. He is not caught off guard. He uses everything for His glory and my ultimate good. He uses tragedy to accomplish His will. And His will is right. It's holy and perfect. Sorrow may come with the night, but joy comes in the morning. That's what's true about God, no matter my circumstance. And I challenge you this morning, if you're beginning to question, and you've got why flooding your heart and they're challenging who God is in your life even I challenge you to remember who God is see the enemy wants you to get focused on what isn't it isn't my healing it wasn't uh, saved from death it wasn't the circumstance was perfect but he you need to focus on who God is in the middle of that circumstance man we gotta move on to the story, part of the story that everybody knows about, and I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it because I've got 65 pages of notes left. It says he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle. Now this was on a Sabbath, and so first of all, we talked about this on the one miracle. This was against Sabbath regulations. Now, <laughs> it was the forming of the clay. The, the law didn't actually say you can't spit on the ground and make a clay ball, uh, but you weren't allowed because that was forming something. Some people feel it was just... Uh, of course, Jesus did not need to do this. He did not need to spit in the clay for the healing to happen. Some people feel that this was just him, uh, uh, you know, sticking it in the ribs of the Pharisees one more time, saying, watch, I'm going to do a little bit of work here on the Sabbath. However, we do find it in an ancient Jewish uh, tradition. It's written down in the Talmud, and it was an oral tradition. And it contains a section in the Talmud on, on, on inheritance about how to decide who gets the inheritance and all of this stuff going on in the firstborn. And then there comes this strange section where people come up and say, uh, Judge, I know who the firstborn is. And they give different reasons about how they know who the firstborn is. And there's one that's just really strange, but I think it ties in with this story because Jesus has been talking in the previous chapter, he's been talking about him being the light of the world. And he's talking about who his father is. And the Pharisees come up to him and say, You're of the devil. Your father is the devil. That's what they tell him. <laughs> so it's, it's got a little bit heated here. And they're questioning his parentage, his genealogy. And, and in this, and, and then Jesus does this. He goes to the healing. He spits in the dirt. He puts it in the guy's eyes, tells him, go wash, and the guy is healed. Well, in this part of the, the oral tradition, one, one of the sections says, the guy comes up to the judge and says, judge, I know who the firstborn is. The judge says, how do you know who the firstborn is? He said, because the, the firstborn, the, the the guy spit and it healed somebody's eyes. You see, in the Jewish oral tradition, it was uh, something that the firstborn spit, any firstborns don't try this, had healing properties. 
Don't know why, that's not biblical, but it was an oral tradition they had that the firstborn, his spit had healing properties. So Jesus was doing more than just saying, well, you know what, I think I'll just spit today. No, he'd just been accused, your dad's the devil. You know what he was saying? No, I'll show you, I'm the firstborn of the only, I'm the only begotten son. My dad is not the devil. No, I come from my father. This is a lesson on divinity that he is giving to the Pharisees through this miracle. That you know what, there may be a mess in your life. There may be spit on your face in your life, but you know what? God can still reveal who he is in the middle of it all. God can still show up as Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. This was a a theological lesson that he was giving the Pharisees. He would say, no, I know who I am, and this is proof that I'm the firstborn. He said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and I'm hurrying up here which is by interpretation sent. This event occurred during the Feast of Tabernacles. During this festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, the priests would draw water from this pool of Siloam. It was a man-made pool. It was an amazing, actually, uh, architectural uh, or, or engineering feat that they'd done. And, but they would draw water from this pool for the ceremonies for the Feast of Tabernacle. In fact, uh, it was, they would draw, and, and it goes back all the way to Isaiah, that they would draw from the wells of salvation. It was speaking of this exact pool. And so Jesus told the man to go wash in the pool of salvation, really. Salvation can cure a lot in your life. Why did Jesus do all of this, is my question, when he could have just instantaneously healed him? We talked about the miracle of the, uh, the guy laying at the pool of uh, Bethesda and, and you know, the, where the waters were troubled. He just walks up to the guy and he says, you want help? Do you want healed? Yes. He says, all right, take up your mat and walk. And the guy goes. So why did Jesus spit on the ground? Well, we just learned a little bit about that. Why did he make mud? And of course, we know there's a tie into uh, he created man out of dirt. We don't know if the guy had eyeballs or not. Some people say he was forming eyeballs out of dirt. Uh, that's, that's just people's ideas. But why couldn't he have just said, be healed? Like he did to so many other people. Why, and he didn't just put mud in his eyes. He told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, this is part of the Temple Mount. This is, so it's not like he had to walk 50 miles. But it's during the Feast of Tabernacles. It's narrow streets leading there. This guy had to navigate his way through thousands of people that were there for the feast. And then leading down to the Pool of Siloam and also on the way are multiple staircases. Leading to the Pool of Siloam is a bunch of steps. What's more sadistic than sending a blind guy to go wash his eyes except to say, go down the steps too? I mean, really. <laughs> At the bottom of that staircase, <laughs> I, it just seems a little confusing. This man was really helpless, and Jesus told him to go and do something. Really, it seems a little sadistic. There, there's, there's, there, it's, just, it's an arduous trip. It would be one of the, I don't want to go there, if you had sight because of the crowds and everything happening. And then, of course, the man's on his way, rubbing his eyes. He's got mud in his eyes. I don't know if you've ever got dirt in your eyes. At one point in my life, uh, I don't know how it's, well, I'm running out of time. We had a sand fight. Anyway, that was the dumbest thing ever, throwing sand in each other's face. That's just stupid. Why would Jesus do that to this man? And and, and this is, uh, I'll just throw it out there as an opinion, a supposition of mine. Perhaps Jesus was working on more than just this man's physical healing. Perhaps he was dealing with this man's emotions and his mentality. 
And, and we could spend a long time here, but we don't have a long time. Having a disability in those times was not like today. You read stories today about uh, guys, they've got, uh, you know, or, or women for that matter, blind and climbing Mount Everest, or they, they've lost limbs and they're doing all this stuff. There, there's really no, no barriers today. You can, you can do whatever you want, but not so in those times. You were even limited to which parts of the temple you could go to. A disability ch- uh, just drastically changed the course of your life. You were forced to beg. You couldn't work. There was no, uh, it was just, you were on the low rung of society. Really, this man would have been counted, uh, except for his close friends and family, probably a reject of society, a beggar. He's on the bottom rung. He's on a, in a place in society that was re- not even really a place. And he made the man get up and do something that was difficult. We don't read where anybody helped him. Maybe they did. But this guy had had to be led around his whole life, told where to go, feel his way around. And Jesus said, I want you to do something that's one of the most difficult things for you to do. And I believe that he spoke uh, these words to this man because he wanted to restore this man's dignity and he wanted to get rid of this man's helplessness in his life. I I believe he was dealing with the mentality of this man. And, and I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's something that this man should have had a different mentality. Culture had, had uh, crafted this. Culture had shaped him, the society he was in. He had no place. He was a victim. He was helpless. And I don't have time to go into a whole lot, but the guy at Bethesda, we get the idea that that man was kind of helpless too. He laid there for 38 years and never made it into the pool. And judging by verses after, that guy still continued a life of blaming and helplessness. I believe Jesus wanted to do more than just heal this man. And I believe Jesus wants to do more in your life than just heal you. He wants to affect your mindset. He wants to affect how you view life. He wants to change you emotionally and spiritually. You see, what I believe Jesus was trying to do, before this man was even healed, and I don't know if this is the the politically correct way to say it, so I'll just say it, and if it's wrong, then whatever. But I believe Jesus did not want him to be healed and stay in the mindset of a victim. Now... Did he deserve to, be a, to have a mindset of a victim? I, I, I can't disagree. He'd been blind all of his life. But Jesus was saying, I want you to go do something that's really pretty much impossible. If not impossible, it's very difficult for you to do. Because I don't want you just to wander around in helplessness after you're healed. I don't want you to go back to the way of life that it used to be. I don't want you to get stuck in pity. I don't want you to get stuck in the way life used to be, but I'm going to help you right now. I'm going to speak to your helplessness, and I want you to go do something. Sometimes God asks us to go do something in our life before the miracle ever happens. If God's telling you to go wash, if God's telling you to go do something and it seems impossible, perhaps God is doing something more in your life than just what you think he is. He's changing your outlook. He's changing your mindset. Can you imagine how that man feels? He's got that same attitude, I would guarantee, that whole way there. Why did Jesus, and and this is all conjecture on my part, I can't believe Jesus is making me do this. As As he falls down the stairs or makes his way gingerly down the stairs to the pool, he's still got that attitude. He still has that mindset of being blind. And it's right because he is blind. But imagine as soon as he washes and he looks up and he sees the steps that he came down blind. What can he do now? What can he do now that he is healed? Jesus has taken away that mindset. He's taken away that attitude. And I believe there's too many people that God does a work in their life. And you're content simply to return to the same mindsets, the same attitudes that you had in your life before God ever did anything. 
And the reason I'm struggling is not because I didn't get the miracle, but because I haven't changed my own mindset. And I'm going to end with really where we started last, or ended up last Sunday service. Let's finish up. There's so much stuff in these stories. I just thought Jesus was spitting because he was clearing his throat. Tied in with this is where Jesus sent the man to wash. He just didn't send him to any pool. He sent him to Siloam, which scripture tells us is translated sent. Not smell, but go. And I want to just leave you with these two things real quick. (laughs) The condition of the man. This man was blind when he was sent. The condition of the man did not preclude Jesus from sending him. That means it doesn't matter what circumstance you're in in your life. It doesn't matter how bad it looks in your life. Jesus can still send you. You can still go. In fact, I would just say this, and perhaps this is a little little rough, but I'll just say it. The only thing hindering you from being sent is not the circumstance, is not the blindness, is not the helplessness, none of that. The only thing hindering you is your obedience to His Word to go, not your condition. So I'm challenging you this morning to lay... I I know you still are blind on the way there. I know things haven't changed. I know it's still rough, but if He says to go... If he says, I'm sending you, then follow his word and your miracle may happen on the way. Don't allow your circumstances to say, I can't do that because I'm blind. No, Jesus knew the man was blind and he sent him anyway. I can't do that because I'm not this. I'm not that. I've got this happening in your life. No, Jesus knows that and he's sending you anyway. Follow him. Obey him. John 9, 25 finish with this. This is after the story. The commotions erupted. Everything's going on. And this is where uh, Brother Gene mentioned this last Sunday in our, our service. Great service we had last week. John 9, 25. This is the guy. He, all the stuff's come around. They finally, they've decided that this is the blind guy. And the Pharisees find him and they, they say, they say are, are you the blind guy? What happened? What's going on? He said, uh, whether he be a sinner or no, because remember, they're calling him the son of the devil. He said, I don't know if he's God or the devil. He says, one thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. You know what? I think what this church needs, what this community needs, is not another theological debate. Is this God? Is there three? Is, no. You know what? I know that matters. It matters if he's of the devil or the son of God. That's pretty important. But he said, I don't know that. Here's what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. That's all I know. I think it's time for some experiences to happen in people's lives. That I, I don't know what happened to me. I was on drugs. I'm not on drugs. I was addicted. I'm not addicted. It was an impossible healing, and I'm healed. And I don't know what happened, but I know that I met a man. Oh, that's what this community needs. That's what people need. They've had enough of oratory. They've had enough debate and discussion. They need an experience, which is what we said last week, an experience from God that, you know what, I can't explain it all, but this is what I do know. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I can see. Let's stand this morning. I'm ready to go. And I believe, I believe in our own life that God wants to do that in people in this, in this room right now that stand here today, that this is what you need. The explanations haven't done it. You've tried to talk and it's just not working. You just need an experience. 
You just need to, to have that experience with Jesus. And I believe, because Jesus says, I'm the light of the world as long as I'm in the world, there, there's light. We, I said that at the start. Jesus is no longer physically in the world, but we are, and we know we are the light. So we need to encounter people and allow God to use us so that people have this experience through us. People that work, that you've been, you've been talking to for a long time, and you've told them, they may even say, I see it, I just can't. Next time there's something going on in their life, say, you know what, we're going to pray about this and I'm going to take it to Jesus. And you may not be able to explain what happens, but I know something's going to happen. I believe it. I believe there's people in this community that, well, let's just, I want us to pray right now. I want the Spirit to do a work in us. I want Him to challenge us. That, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, just let it happen. Just let it happen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you.